So um, I had to decide, what am I going to talk about this last weekend of 2018? Um, it's after Christmas, so what are we going to talk about after Christmas? You know, we just finished a Christmas series, what's going to be next? And I thought, you know, for the few of you that actually show up this weekend, you're the core, by the way, um, let's talk about something really practical. Let's talk about something that you can really apply to your life um, as we start this new year. And so if you'll, if you'll receive this, if you'll, you'll take this, it's going to be very practical today. Um, but I think that a lot of us, you know, as we approach the new year, we think about different changes we want to make in our lives. We think about um, who we want to be in the next year because, you know, you can either be the same person a year from now or you can be a person who's more like Jesus. You can be the person that God's called you to be. And at the same time, you know, in the church, a lot of times we see people give their life to Jesus Christ and then a year later they're the exact same person. And I think that sometimes we need to talk about biblically what does it actually look about to have permanent change. Because Jesus didn't come to leave us as we are. He came to love us just as we are, with no strings attached. But at the same time, he loves us way too much to leave us as we are, and he expects us to change. And if we're really accepting Christ and we're really allowing Jesus to work in our lives, we're going to be radically different than we were before we received Jesus. So what are the biblical principles that we can apply that actually cause permanent change in our lives? And, and so that's what we're looking at today. And what I thought I'd do is I'd take one of my favorite passages of Scripture as we end the year, and I'm just going to literally go through it verse by verse, word by word, and we're going to pull some serious meat out of it because that's just, it's awesome. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you don't know where that is, it's Ma Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament, and you can turn there. And, uh, and we're going to just go through each verse. So the first principle I'm going to share with you, I'm going to share six principles and then a nugget that you can take with you and apply to your life. So the first principle we're calling dedication, the principle of dedication. And the thought is that we need to commit our bodies to God. If you haven't done that, that's step number one, commit our bodies to God. That's the starting point. In other words, for change to happen in our life, whether it's financial or vocational or spiritual or mental or emotional or relational, it actually works best, the Bible saying, to begin with the physical. And most of us don't do that. But it says, commit my body to God. That's what the Bible says. And why is this true? Let me ask that. To start with the physical, it's because your body affects your behavior. If you didn't know that, your body affects your mood. Your muscles affect your motivation. Any teacher knows this. Those of, the, those of you who are teachers, when a student walks into class in the morning, if they walk in all slouched over like this, you know they're going to be in the worst mood all day and you're going to have a tough time. That's just how it works. And teachers know this. And let me prove it to you. Everybody sit up straight for just a second. Just play along. Roll your shoulders back a little bit. Take a deep breath. Hold it for a second. And then let it out slowly. Okay, I don't know if you feel any better, but you definitely look better. <laughs> you look way better, right? And that's because your physiology literally actually affects your psychology. And that's a biblical principle. Um, it, your body sent a message to your brain just now that said, sit up and listen, as you should. Um, and so God says, offer your bodies. Let's start there. Verse 1. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And guys, this verse is packed with so much stuff, I could spend weeks on it, but I'm just going to try to bring some of the highlights out. So first off, it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers. And let me give you a little Bible study tip. Anytime in the Bible when you're reading it and you see the word therefore, it's a good idea to go back and figure out what it's there for. Because the word therefore literally means, in light of what I just said, now I'm saying this. 
And so you need to look at what was said before the word therefore to really get the meaning of that line or you're not going to get the context. And so I'm not going to read you the first 11 chapters of Romans, but what Paul just spent a while doing is explaining to all of us, here's what God did for you. God did this and this and this and this for you and this mercy and this grace and this forgiveness. And by the way, he also did this, 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 and this, and then he did this. Tons of stuff that God did for you. That's what you're going to read in Romans chapters 1 through 11. And then Paul says, therefore, so in other words, in light of all that God has done for you, which you did not deserve, everything he did for you, now let me tell you something. And so he says, therefore, in light of all these mercies, all the grace he's shown you, offer your bodies. Because of everything God's done, offer your bodies. Notice it doesn't say here, offer your heart to Jesus. Because you hear that all the time. Give your heart to Jesus. It doesn't even say, offer your spirit to Jesus, offer your soul to Jesus in this line. No, he actually says, offer your body. Why? Because that's actually all you've got. I don't know if you knew that. That's all you've got. As long as you're on this planet, everything that you do for God, in God, through God, you're going to do in your bod for God. That's the bod you've got for the rest of your life, and you're, you're stuck with it. Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, I can't be there tomorrow night, but I'll be with you in spirit? You know what that means? Nothing. Stop saying that. You can't be with somebody. You can only physically be with somebody, period. That's the only way you can be with somebody. You're just, you just say you're not going to be there. That's a more accurate statement. It says, offer your body, because you're limited to your physical body while you're here on earth. And you know, side note, the Bible teaches in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that the body is actually a good thing. It's a good thing. And there was actually a group of people back in the time of Jesus that were called the Gnostics, and it was a cult, and they were a group of people that actually believed that the physical body was an evil, bad thing. And they even went so far as to say that Jesus himself didn't even live in a physical body while he walked the earth because it was a bad thing. How could he live in it? But, of course, that's hogwash. And so the Bible actually teaches the opposite of that. The Bible teaches that not only is the body good, but the things you do with the body are good, and it's, 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 it's good. And the, the Bible teaches very clearly that God created my body, and his spirit dwells within my body, and he uses my body for his good, and my body's connected to God's family, which is the body of Christ. And, and one day my body's going to be resurrected, which is a really good thing. Um, and the bottom line is, it's a good thing. So he says, offer your bodies. Question, when he says offer, when you offer something, is that voluntary or forced? Voluntary. And that's an important principle today to understand. Because you can't change unless you choose to change. And you can't make changes in your life unless you choose to make changes in your life. Nobody can force you to offer your body. Nobody can force you to change. And, you know, a lot of people I've noticed don't realize this before they get married. And I've done a lot of weddings over the last decade. And I can't count how many times the bride says, the, says these words that allude to the fact that, well, you know, um, now that I've tied the knot, now that I've secured this guy, now I'm going to change him. No, you're not. That doesn't happen. Marry the guy who's already the guy that you want to marry. Don't, don't expect to change him afterward. You, you can't change your husband. You can't change your wife. You can't change your parents. You can't change your friends. You can only change if you choose to change. Somebody you love can only change if they actually make the choice to change. You can't force it on them. And so that's, that's the principle, the first one. Write this down. Change is my choice. It's my choice. And so if you go through your life never changing or becoming more like Christ, that's a choice that you made. It's not something that was forced on you. It's a choice. It's always a choice. Nobody can make you change. I can't talk you into change. You're not going to ever change until you actually decide to change. And that's just a fact. So offer your body as a living sacrifice, 
to God, a living sacrifice to God. You know, the problem with a living offering is it can crawl off the altar the next day. And we do that all the time. You know, we offer ourselves to God on Sunday and we sing the songs like we mean them and then on Monday we live completely different as if we weren't even in the house. And, and a lot of us do that and we offer ourselves to God but then we take ourselves back. And, and I think the misconception is we say things like, well, you know, I gave my, my whole self to Jesus Christ back in 2016 or whenever it was. No, it's like two, four, ten times a day that you need to be offering yourself again and again and again to Jesus because that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then he says, it's your spiritual act of worship. You say, wait a minute, like, you're saying there's something I can actually do with my body that's an act of worship? Yeah, there absolutely is. In fact, I'm going to give you three right now. Number one, you can cleanse it. You can cleanse your body. That's a biblical concept. I'm talking about detox. I'm talking about not putting poison in my body, which the Bible describes as a temple of God. So there may be some stuff that I'm putting in my body that I need to stop putting in my body. You need to cleanse your body sometimes. I'll back that up in 2 Corinthians 7. It says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, notice the motivation here. The motivation is that I want to be holy before God. The motivation is that I want to be reverence, bring reverence to God. God made my body, so I need to take care of it. The verse says, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So what contaminates my body? That's the stuff that I put in through my mouth. The things that I eat, the things that I drink, sometimes the things that I smoke, right? That's what contaminates my body. What contaminates my spirit? The things that go in through my ears and my eyes. The things that I listen to, the things that I watch, the things that I think about, that's what contaminates my spirit. Does that make sense? So the first thing you can do, the Bible says, out of reverence for God, is cleanse your body of contaminants, and it's, it's, that's considered an act of worship. Okay, the second thing you can do is you can care for your body. It's the only one you got, so it's important to care for it. That's an act of worship. It's an act of stewardship, because remember, everything on this earth that you think you own is really on loan. <laughs> you don't actually own it. You didn't own anything before you came into this world. You're not going to own anything after you leave this world, um, and, uh, and that's just how it works. It's just on loan to you while you're here on earth. In Ephesians 5, it says, Nobody hates his own body, at least if they're in their right mind, but lovingly cares for it, just as Christ cares for his body, which is the church, the family of God. So that says we're to care for our bodies the same way that Christ cares for his body, which is the church. And that's a lot of care. That's a lot of care. So caring for your body can be an act of worship. And then the third one, and this is hard, by controlling your body. By controlling it. And, and that's only an act of worship, though, let me point this out, when it's done out of reverence for God or to please God. It's got to be done out of the right motivation. Some people control their body and care for their body as an act of worship to themselves. I could take you down to the gym and show you a couple hundred people today that are doing it out of worship of themselves. I'm talking about caring for it, controlling it in a way so that you can bring reverence and worship to God so that he can use you more. You know, and so it's not an act... Things that you offer to God are not an act of worship automatically. It has to be done with the right heart, and the Bible says that again and again and again and again. It's an act of worship if you're doing it out of reverence for God. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. In other words, I control it. It doesn't control me. So you don't say things like, well, I couldn't help myself. No, you could. You have control. Um, 1 Corinthians 9 
I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should do. Another one says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. By the way, if we actually did these things that the Bible does talk about, do you think we'd have fewer health problems in the world? It's a fact. I read an article recently on health. I'm just going to read you one sentence from it. It said, 75% of the $2.5 trillion of U.S. health care Guys, that's 75% of all the money in the U.S. spent on healthcare, which is $2.5 trillion, stems from chronic diseases that would have been prevented simply by lifestyle choices. Now again, I'm not talking about those of you in the other 25%, so don't, don't take it that way. I realize there's, that that's saying that there's 25% of us in this country that we have things going on in our bodies that are not our choice. But 75%, it's saying, of the diseases that end up killing people are simply preventable by changing lifestyle, making different decisions. And so, you know, you know what that means? For 75% of us, that means it's actually up to us. It's up to us. And all that expensive stuff and healthcare and all that stuff, we wouldn't even need it if we just took care of ourselves like God instructs us to and made different decisions. Um, 75% of all healthcare is due to things that we're not cleansing, controlling, or caring for. And somebody said, well, why are we talking about the physical? Can we get off this now? Yeah, in a minute. But that's the first part of the verse. Number one, it says, offer your body. That's what it says, as a living sacrifice. And, and, and any change that you want to make in your life, guys, it starts with that. And here's why. Whether it's relational, financial, emotional, mental, whatever change you're trying to make in your life, you have to have the energy to make the change. And if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to have, you're going to always be too tired to make the changes that God calls you to make. You know, you're going to get home and want to lay down and watch Dancing with the Stars instead of actually dancing under the stars, you know, or whatever. The second principle is concentration. Okay, we're moving on from the body. Some of you are like, thank you. Concentration. And that is that I must refocus my mind. And this one's even more important, guys. We have to refocus our minds. Verse 2, that's where I get it from. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. He's talking about the way the world thinks. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the reason that we start here. Because whatever gets your attention gets you. That's how life works. And so what he's talking about is you have to stop thinking about what you don't want and start thinking about what you do want. Okay? you got to stop focusing on what's bad for you and start focusing on what's good for you this year. Stop focusing on your plan for your life and start focusing on God's plan for your life. Stop focusing on the things that you think need to happen in your life and start focusing on the things God thinks needs to happen in your life. And you got to transform in that way by the renewing of your mind. That's where it starts. Again, this is a powerful verse. We could spend a lot of time here. We don't have a lot of time. But first it says, do not conform. What does conform mean? Conform literally means to copy everybody else. That's to conform. And, and too often, guys, we let everybody else shape our lives. And we let everybody else tell us how to live and what we should do. Have you ever, be honest, have you ever done anything stupid or hurtful because everybody else was doing it and that was the reason? Yeah, most of you. Okay, and the rest of you are liars. Because, but you did it because it was popular. It was popular, everybody else was doing it, you know, and, and it was the cool thing to do. No, let me tell you this. Nobody has ever smoked a cigarette because they thought it smelled good the first time. 
they did it because somebody else was doing it, and then they became addicted, and now they love it. It always started because they were copying somebody else. I could give you a hundred other things that start because you're simply starting because someone else did it, but it wasn't actually appealing, but now it becomes a habit. Notice then it says, any longer. If you're taking notes, circle that. Any longer. Because when you do something for a long time, whether it's positive or negative, it becomes a habit. It becomes habitual. When you've done it for a long time, all of a sudden, you're no longer copying what somebody else is doing. It's yours now. It's your hang-up now. It's your habit. It's your hurt. It's your pattern. You now own it because you've been doing it for a long time. It's not because of somebody else anymore. Now it's yours. Do not conform any longer, and the next part says, to the pattern of this world. Here's an interesting point with that. Everything that you've learned in your life up to this point, you've probably learned from a pattern. You've learned from following a model of some kind. That's how we learn. The problem, though, is there's no such thing as a perfect model in this world. The only thing perfect on this earth is God's Word. And the only perfect model we've ever had is Jesus Christ. So the models we grew up with, trying to follow, were imperfect. And that's the issue that we face. So, for instance, many of you had models and patterns that you grew up with for resolving conflict, and so that's now how you resolve conflict. Many of you had a model growing up for anger management, and so now that's how you manage anger. Many of you had a pattern growing up for how to handle finances, and so now that's how you handle your money because that's how you grew up. You had a, a, a pattern, you know, for, for, for procrastinating, and now that, that's what you do. And, you know, some people say, well, no, this is just who I am. I'll, I'll do me. That, no, you're not supposed to do you. You're supposed to become new. That's what you're supposed to do. And so it's not you. It's a pattern you picked up. It's become a part of you, but that's where you picked it up. And, and, and the problem is a lot of the patterns and models that we grew up with are defective. But they become who we are and they become part of us, but they were defective. They weren't what we were supposed to learn in the first place because we didn't have a perfect model. So now what this is saying is you're no longer, now that you have Christ, going to conform to the defective patterns of this world. It's time to learn new patterns. It's time to follow new models and learn new models and, and the ones that are actually effective, which is only presented to us by God's word. And so you've got to have to learn to have some, some new patterns. So write this down. To change my life, sometimes I have to change my model. Because whether you want to admit it or not, you grew up with imperfect models. And Jesus needs to be the new model. So you need mentors, models. You need, you need partners and friends, and they all play different roles in your life. But here's the other part. You need to choose your models carefully because the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. And every single one of us has models, and every single one of us has people that are peer influences from our children all the way up to us as adults. Everybody has them, and they're starting to steer the direction of your life. The question is, which ones do you have? Because that's the direction your life's going to go. There's only one perfect model. His name is Jesus. Twenty times in the New Testament, Jesus says, follow me. Why? Because he's the perfect model. Almost that many times, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Because he's the model we need to imitate. Imitate me. You're going to have to have a model. So you need to choose carefully. And then it says, so don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed, if you look at the original Greek word, that comes, that's where we get the word metamorphosis from. What's metamorphosis? Metamorphosis is when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's like metamorphosis, right? 
And so when a caterpillar wraps itself up in a cocoon, when it comes out at the end of that metamorphosis process, does it come out as a more attractive caterpillar? No. Does it come out as a caterpillar that's improved or renewed or restored? Or No. It comes out as a completely new creature. It's now a beautiful free butterfly. It's not renewal. It's not improvement. It's not re being restored. It's radical transformation. And that's what's supposed to happen when we give our lives to Jesus Christ and start to allow him to change us from the inside out radical transformation we become a completely different creature it's not an improved us it's not a different us or a better us it's a different creature altogether that's why we call it being born again because it's a new life only god can create a new life you can turn over a new leaf but you can't you can't create a new life that only comes from god by renewing your mind look at this other verse i found on renewing your mind there's verses all throughout it says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful de desires. So those impulses, right? Those compulsions that pull you in the wrong direction. And be made new in the attitude of your mind. You know, guys, attitudes are kind of like diapers. You have to change them every once in a while or they're going to stink. <laughs> you have to be changing them constantly because they always end up stinking. You put, but it's saying you put off your old self and be made new in the attitude of your mind. But that part about putting off your old self is interesting because it says that first, put off your old self, and then it says, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a putting off and a putting on. And maturity, guys, in, in Christianity, maturity comes down to knowing the stuff that I need to stop doing, the things I need to, to take off, and then the stuff I need to start doing, the stuff I need to put on. And we need to look at both of those, the putting off and the putting on. And, so, so, and sometimes you have to put off before you can put on. Like if you go to the mall and you want to buy a new jacket, you don't take the jacket and the one you wore in into the little changing room and try it on over the old jacket. That'd be stupid because first of all, it's going to be hot. And secondly, you're going to have no idea if it fits. You take off the old one before you put the new one on and then it fits like it's supposed to. So sometimes we try to make that change before we take off the old junk. That's why it says, I think, first, putting off before we put on. Okay? And so the third principle, let me start this way. If I were to call you and say, hey, I'm coming over to your house this afternoon for lunch, wink, wink, um, what's the first question you're going to ask me? Well, where are you? Where are you? Because I have to know where I am before you can give me directions to where I need to go. Right? So, because I could be on the other side of town, I could be in Tulare, I could be in Exeter, I could be anywhere. So, you have to know where you are before you can get the accurate directions of where you need to go. And so, that's the third principle it's evaluation. I have to humbly assess my current state. Humbly, because it takes humility to do it right. Assess my current state. Guys, the first and greatest barrier to change in the kingdom of God that prevents us from changing and becoming who we need to be in any area of our life is pride. It's the greatest barrier. Because you hear people say all the time, at least I do, I don't have any problems. I am who I am. I don't need to change anything. How dare you suggest I need to make a change? I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. It says you need to make a lot of changes. <laughs> and uh, how dare you suggest that? You know? and, and we don't want to admit that we need to change anything in our life. And here's the fact, guys. Nobody has it all together. 
I don't have it all together. You don't have it all together. The Pope doesn't have it all together. Nobody does. And yet, we live our life trying to pretend that we have it all together to impress people that already know we don't have it all together in the first place. And that's how we live our life. And the Bible says there's nothing perfect on earth except God's Word. We live on a broken planet, and it's broken because of sin. Have you noticed that your body does not work perfectly? (laughs) Have you noticed that your relationships do not work perfectly? Nothing works perfectly because we live on a broken planet, and that's because of sin. So nothing's perfect, but yet we pretend like we have it all together. We walk around trying to impress people, and you know you don't have it all together. God knows you don't have it all together. We all know you don't have it all together. And, and so why do you pretend it? I would rather admit that I don't have it all together so then at least I can try to have it all together instead of pretending like I don't have it all together and I don't even know what I just said. <laughs> Did that make sense? Some of you? In other words, honesty is the best policy. And I must humbly assess my current state. So I have to admit when I don't have it all together. I have to admit if I have a problem in the way I handle my finances. <laughs> or I'm not going to change. I have to admit if I have a problem in the way I handle my marriage. I have to admit if I have a problem in the way that I handle relationships with other people. I, you know, I have to admit it. So first he says, next, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, be humble. I would say it this way, be humble or you'll stumble. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think you don't have any problems. Well, my family's perfect. Oh, really? (laughs) My marriage is perfect. Oh, really? My job's perfect. Uh Uh-huh. My kids are perfect. We all know that's not true. (laughs) Just be honest. Be authentic. Be real. Be humble. That's the first thing to change. It's so important. And then he says, think of your life with sober judgment. So be realistic. Another translation says, be honest in your estimate of yourself. And you know, sometimes that takes asking somebody else to help assess you because you don't see yourself accurately. And the the really mature people ask others to help them assess themselves. Um, So let me just ask you some honest questions to help you. And you don't have to answer out loud. In fact, I, I wouldn't want you to. What are you pretending is not a problem in your life right now? What are you pretending is not a problem in your marriage? What are you pretending is not a problem in the way that you love and raise your kids? What are you pretending is not a problem in the way you handle your finances right now? What are you pretending is not a problem with your health, but it really is? Do you have enough courage to confront yourself? Do you have the guts to ask somebody else, to tell you what the problem is that they see that you might not see in yourself that you can change. Because that takes guts. To ask the people closest to you, hey, be honest with me. Tell me the truth. I'm doing an intervention on myself. You don't even have to intervene. I'm doing one on myself. Tell me the truth about some things that I need to change. Lay it all out. Do you have the courage to ask other people to be honest about you? People you trust. People who love you and care enough to tell you the truth. And then it says in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Circle measure of faith. The word measure here in the Greek is where we get the word metric from, the metric system. So this is the metron of faith, the measure of faith. Let me be really real with you. You need to set goals and reach goals. I believe that's a biblical thing. You're not meant to coast through life. 
and let life happen to you. You're meant to be an active participant in God's plan by making life happen around you. And God uses you and does that through you. So you need to set goals. But the problem is you need more faith to reach more goals. And the Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. So you're going to need to know what is the measure of faith I have and then what is the measure of faith I'm going to need to get to the place of change I need to be at? What's the measure of faith that I need? Do I actually have faith that I can change? That's where it starts. Do I actually believe that I can change? Do I really believe I can be different? You need to increase your measure of faith. How do you get more faith? The Bible says you get more faith by hearing the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. The more you hear, this is soul food. It feeds your soul. It stretches your faith. It grows your faith. Why is this important? Because people that have a limited faith have a limited future. But people who have unlimited faith have an unlimited future. That's a biblical concept. The more you hear the word of God, the more your faith grows. But he says you need to know the measure of your faith. And why is that important? Write this down. I can only measure what I can, what, I can only manage what I measure. I can only manage what I measure. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. You know, some people tell me, ah, God doesn't care about numbers. Don't talk about measurements and numbers. There's a book in here called Numbers, guys. God cares about numbers. I can't tell you how many times God in here said the 12, the 100, the 3,000. He counts. <laughs> he measures things. So don't give me that. That's not biblical. I have to evaluate humbly and assess my current state. Fourth one, verse four, cooperation. Guys, we have to get group support. You have to get group support. You will not make the changes that you need to make, want to make, desire to make, plan to make. If you could, you would, but you can't, so you won't. You can't do it alone. You need people around you. You need a group. The Bible says that God wired the universe in such a way that we need each other. We change in community. We get well in community. We mature and grow in our faith in community, not alone. You're not meant to be a lone ranger. 58 times in the New Testament, it says one another. It commands us, love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, build each other up. That's why you can't follow Jesus if you're not plugged in and connected to a local body of believers, a local church, because you can't even obey those 58 things. If you're not connected to the body of Christ, those 58 commands have to do with doing those things to other Christians. Those are 58 commands that you're to do. You need a family. And so join a group, be part of a ministry team. It's, it's, it's important. You need to get plugged in. The Bible says in verse 4, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We're all parts of his one body, and each of us has different work to do. Since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. I didn't say it. God said it. Circle, we belong to each other? That means I belong to all of you, and you all belong to me, and vice versa, and all over the room. And circle, we need each other. And I don't have time to go further into this, but here's the principle. Change requires community. It requires community around you. It's not a solo issue. If you want permanent change, it requires two things, God's power and God's people. If you don't have those two things, you're not going to make permanent change in your life. Number five, affirmation. You must fill your life with love. And this is one that a lot of us miss. You need to be intentional, not just about loving 
but about filling your life with love. If you want lasting, permanent change in yourself, you have to do that. Why? Because love can change the unchangeable. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. God himself is love. He doesn't just love, he is love. It's his very essence. Love revitalizes, love renews, it restores, it heals, it forgives, it brings grace and mercy. It covers all, it conquers all. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. It empowers you when you don't have the power. In the Song of Solomon, it says, love is stronger than death. If you think love is stronger than death, which it says, then don't you think love is also stronger than depression? And love is stronger than despair and discouragement? Love is stronger than divorce. Love is stronger than doubt. Love is stronger than anything else. So you have to fill your life with love if you want to actually change. Verse 9 says, Don't just pretend you love others. Really love them. Hate what is evil. Sometimes you've got to confront it, right? Hate what is evil. Stand on the side of good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. I love that. Take delight in honoring each other. Do you know what that means? That means when somebody on your team or in your small group or in your circle of friends or whatever it is, when they have a small win in their life, no matter how small it is, you celebrate that with them. You say, oh, you made that small change in your marriage? That's awesome, man. Keep going. You say, oh, you didn't reach your whole goal yet, but you paid off a little bit of debt and you feel a little more free? That's great. Keep going, man. You celebrate the small wins. The Bible actually says we're to do that and, and, and outdo each other in celebrating each other's wins even. Here's the amazing thing. God has wired the world that when you help other people, God meets more of your needs. God is looking down to say, not are you helping yourself, but are you helping other people? Because when you help other people, I'm going to do great things in you. That's where that comes from. It all starts with servanthood. That's the last step in recovery, by the way. For those of you that are familiar with that process, that's a biblical process. It's to give back. You haven't arrived till you start giving back when you're helping somebody else. You know the story of Job where he literally lost everything? His family, his wealth, his possessions, he lost everything. When did God give it all back double? It wasn't when Job prayed for himself to get it back. It says, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord gave him success again, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as before. Not when he prayed for himself, but when he prayed for his friends. Why do we need to be connected to the body of Christ and have those relationships and those groups and those teams and those relationships with others? It's not just so it helps you, although it does. It's so you can help other people. There's one last one. Number six, motivation. This one's important to me. I must nurture my enthusiasm. In other words, I've got to figure out how to maintain my passion and enthusiasm over the long haul because it's easy to lose it. And I'm going to talk about this really blunt as we, as we close. How do I nurture my enthusiasm? Because I found this to be very true in my life that nothing has been accomplished in my life without passion or enthusiasm. Nothing great at least. Nothing that God would have me do. And I would say that without enthusiasm, you're probably not going to make it to the finish line that you're going for. So you can't just say, I kind of want to get out of debt. You're never going to get out of debt. 
you can't just say, I want to get in shape. Pass me the cookies. You know, that doesn't work. If you're just kind of ho-hum, half-hearted, no energy, no enthusiasm trying to make a change in your life, you're never going to do it. You have to have some gusto, some oomph, some enthusiasm, some passion. And you know what I've noticed is it's really easy to be enthusiastic right when you start something, even for a couple weeks or a month even. But man, then you get distracted and other things come into play and it's easy to lose your enthusiasm really fast. So I just want to talk to you briefly about how do you maintain your enthusiasm, not just for weeks, months, or even years, but for a lifetime, for a lifetime. Most people would consider me to be a pretty enthusiastic person. I have a lot of enthusiasm, and, and it's true, I am. But I haven't just been that way for a week or a month or even years. I've been that way for many, many years. And over many years, those of you that have been with me for over a decade through church planting and different churches and things like that, um, my enthusiasm has never waned. Yes, I've gone through trials and, and struggles, and there's been seasons of extreme pain and hurt, but there was enthusiasm through it all. And so the question is, how do you maintain that? How do you keep that no matter what you're going through, even with the dead ends and the problems and the pressures and the endless criticisms and all that? How do you maintain enthusiasm for years? And it takes way more than positive thinking, guys. Positive thinking can only take you so far. You can only talk yourself into enthusiasm so many times. And the reason is, guys, the truth is there's a lot of things in this world that you cannot be positive about, right? Can we admit that? Rape is not positive. Murder is not positive. When your child dies, that's not positive. There's no way you can spin that to make that positive, and we have to be real about that. And all the positive thinking in the world is not going to get you through those kinds of situations. You need God to get you through those things. He's the only thing that can get you through. The way that you stay enthusiastic for a lifetime is through the word enthusiasm. It comes from the word entheos. En means in, and theos means God. In God. Theos. By the way, if your name's Theodore or Dorothy, your name literally means in God, which I think is awesome. But when you get in God, you will be enthusiastic. And it's that kind of gut-level enthusiasm that fills your heart with so much enthusiasm that it doesn't matter what you go through. Yes, it's still going to hurt, and you're still going to be upset and all, feel all those emotions, but you can still have the enthusiasm to get you through and to keep changing and doing the things of God, no matter what the temperature is, in God. And Paul tells us how to do that, and this is the last verse I'm going to read, verses 11 through 12. He says, Never be lacking in zeal, that's enthusiasm, but keep your spiritual fervor. And then he tells you three ways to do it. He says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And that's how you do it, and that's how I've done it for years. And I would even argue that if you find your enthusiasm going away and a lack of passion in your life for the things of God, I guarantee you, you're at least not doing one of those three things. And I would challenge you to just implement all three of those and see what happens. Because God's word doesn't lie. So that's how you keep it. You be joyful in hope so that even when things are going wrong, I can still be joyful in hope because I know God's plan. He wins in the end, which means I win in the end no matter what I go through now. And then be patient in affliction because I know that even in pain, that God didn't necessarily cause the pain, but even when I go through pain, he's using and working in that pain to bring about good. 
because I believe that he's faithful. And then the third one, I can be faithful in prayer. Why? Because every single problem that I walk through, I have two choices. I can either panic or I can pray. I can either worship or I can worry. There's only two choices. And the one you decide on is going to decide the next place you go. I can either get down on my knees or I can fall over and faint. Those are the options. Those are my choices. And so the point is this next year, there's going to be some changes that you want to make. And there should be. And we want God to do what he does best, which is change us from the inside out. But hopefully we went through just a few of the barriers that even unknowingly we sometimes put up as Christians, which prevents the true change from actually becoming permanent. Um, And I think that that's a lot of truth from that little passage of Scripture.